Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 9th of October, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The budget will be announced at 1 o'clock this afternoon when Pascal Donoghue will outline government spending plans for the next year. The minister had indicated he would have €800 million available to him, which would be used to provide public services and cut taxes on a two-to-one ratio. Budget 2019 has been all but leaked at this stage, and now it seems that the minister intends to raise an additional €700 million, giving him around one and a half billion to juggle with today. Housing and health are set for significant funding increases while much of the extra money available to government will come from the hospitality sector which will pay VAT next year at a rate of 13.5% up from the reduced rate of 9%. Our political editor Eileen Brophy is on the line. Good morning Eileen and thanks for joining us as always. Uh, that VAT rate was reduced in the budget of 2011 as a, a jobs initiative when the country was on its back and it applied uh, to a a lot of different industries uh, uh, which we now refer to as the hospitality sector but the old rate of 9% is to remain in place for newspapers and sports facilities there'd be uh, little sympathy I take it for the restaurants and the hotels which would pay this due higher increased rate of 13.5% but there might be some questions about hairdressers have to pay this new rate as well that's right. But, I mean, I don't know why there will be questions about hairdressers. I think they charge absorbent prices anyway. Um, so uh, I think I know myself from going to the hairdressers and from staying in the hotels and from eating out that uh, in the last, certainly in the last six months last year uh, and certainly well over the summer, the prices all were hiked back up. Uh, for you know, for people, uh, for tourists, and, and for people like myself, and for most of our listeners, uh, they just once you know things went well, and once uh, people start making appointments and, and going out to dinner and staying in hotels, uh, they hiked it all back up again. So they didn't, you know, I think they were a bit unfair uh, to you know to the ordinary punter. All right. Well, as I, I say, a lot of this has been leaked already. What yeah. information have you got for us? 
Well, I mean, it depends on where you want to start. There's yeah. so much information. Mm. I suppose the social welfare is something that everybody, you know, will think about, like a, the old age. A fiver for everybody. Yeah. And it's a mm. fiver for mm-hmm. everybody. Uh, so there's a, you know, a bit of a, this morning, a bit of a row because, uh, you know, people that are, are, are on the, you know, that have social welfare on the dole mm. disability, all those people will all get a fiver. Whereas if you actually add up uh, what people are, you know, that are working, that are on the, on the um, the minimum industrial the mm. industrial wage and not the minimum wage but the industrial wage will end up really with only about four fifty so less uh, than uh, what people who aren't working mm. and of course the, the, the people are saying well look you know what about these people that Leo was meant to look after that got up early in the morning to go to work yeah. um, and uh, they're getting less uh, so it would be the average industrial yeah. wage and the Irish uh, Daily Mail has gone pretty heavy on uh, that angle uh, this morning, hasn't it? Uh, suggesting uh, that if you do nothing, you get €250. If you get up early in the morning, you only get 200 over the course of a year. That's right. And I mean, I think, you you know, that that was bound to happen, uh, that, you know, there was going to be controversy over that uh, because, uh, you know, I think there was a lot of controversy in uh, in the beginning when uh, Leo Varadkar said that he was going to look after those people who got up early in the morning and people were insulted about that. So that's come back to bite him in the backside uh, this year. Uh, so, I mean, obviously people are, are looking at, you know, the housing situation and there's going to be quite a big package we expect on that today. Uh, you know, there'll mm. be, um, I suppose, interest relief on rental accommodation. There'll also uh, be money there for uh, to convert your house into a granny flat. Mm. So people that have you know, bigger houses, uh, rather than having to downsize, uh, they they will get a grant maybe to, to cut their house in two and, and maybe make two kind of apartments out of it. Uh, also, inheritance tax has gone up by uh, 10000 so that's now you can inherit 320,000. Uh, they're also talking about building houses in uh, in Dublin that you will be should be able to get a house for around 240,000 uh, when they build new affordable houses in Dublin. Right. Um, you know, so there's there's mm. quite a lot there, um, and we don't know the full package obviously until today. But they're uh, expected to allocate 300 million euro over the next three years to that scheme, and if you're earning 50,000 or less as a single person, uh, it's suggested you'll qualify or 75,000 for a, a couple uh, with a maximum discount of 40% of the market. Uh, landlords may be interested in this budget as well uh, because yeah, uh, they're trying be... to keep them in the market. Mm, with uh, 100% mortgage interest relief for landlords. That's right. And I think, that, you know, that is something that, uh, for landlords because they are, they are saying they've been crucified. Uh, the, apparently, a lot of them are selling up. Uh, they want to get out of, uh, of the rental scheme. So I think uh, this will certainly help to keep them in it and that's what the government are trying to do. All right. If you're paying the higher uh, rate of income tax, uh, you may uh, find that you're not next year unless you get a, a pay increase uh, of up to €750 Euro because that threshold is to increase to 35300 And there's to be adjustments uh, to the universal social charge yeah. which will put money in working people's pockets. That's right. I mean, I think there's been a big play on this. Uh, Fianna Fáil are taking credit for, you know, for this one. Um, a lot of people out there are delighted about this. I mean, there's two schools of thought about this, uh, the USC. Some people are saying that it, it is the only tax that everybody pays. 
uh, and and a lot of people don't want to see it going. But on the other hand, a huge amount of people feel that that you know that we've been overtaxed. That was only put there uh, during the bad times when when you know when we went into recession, and it should be gone by now. So it, obviously, Michael Noonan said that he you know he couldn't get rid of it. Uh, so Pascal is obviously doing something to actually reduce it, uh, and uh, with a view, I think, uh, down down the road to get rid of it as well. But it, it brought in also remember uh, you know the the, the health levy. And all of that into that, mm. so it's it's really it's it's quite difficult uh, to get rid of the USC. But now that it's coming down, I think a lot of people are very very happy with this uh, today. Uh, I take it, Eileen, everybody will get a, a pay increase, or will be looking for a pay increase uh, from uh, their employers next year, given that the minimum wage is set to increase, and undoubtedly other wages will increase in line. Uh, the minimum wage is to go up by twenty five cent to nine eighty an hour. That's right, and I mean obviously. Um, Nine eighty an hour isn't really great money. Um, I think where people are try- where the government and where opposition are trying to get to is to a living wage, and that I'm not quite sure. But that it was I know it's eleven something um, an hour. I know that some supermarkets are paying it, uh, some charities are paying it, um, and they're trying to get more people to actually pay uh, the living wage rather than uh, the the minimum wage. All right, a, a lot in health with a reduction in uh, the prescription charge uh, that people pay now and more people to get uh, free GP care. Yes, now there's, there's, there's obviously the, the GP care is a big thing, obviously the over 70s and obviously for children as well. So I think there will be um, an extra 100,000 uh, GP only medical cards, uh, which is you know quite 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 a substantial amount, uh, but a lot of people feel that they go to the GP, and and I know that um, it, it isn't the biggest thing. The prescription charges seem to be, uh, you know, for the medical card, for the GP only. A lot of people say, well, you know, they only would go maybe twice a year, but whereas they have to take drugs every single day, every single uh, week, and that they would rather to see a full medical card rather than uh, the GP only. But certainly the G- there's going to be 100,000 more people with a GP only card. Okay, but if uh, your prescriptions are very expensive, uh, right. undoubtedly uh, you're uh, claiming under the drugs pay payment scheme and you'll be paying 10 euro a month less. Uh, That's right, they're that going to be capped. Mm-hmm. Well. Okay, uh, and uh, 50 cent reduction in the prescription charge, uh, but uh, 14 million euro being provided for abortion services. Will that be controversial, do you think, Eileen? There'll be a certain amount of controversy about it, but I just think, of, you know, we, we know who, you know, the people that are going to mm. kick up about that uh, today and over the next couple of days and certainly uh, when, when, we're, when, when we're actually voting on, on, on this budget, uh, some of the things obviously are voted on, on tonight, like cigarettes and stuff like that, uh, normally would be voted on, on before midnight on the night uh, and we, we expect to see about 50 cent on that. But certainly uh, it will be controversial but only with a handful of people. All right. Uh, what about the carbon tax? Uh, I think there's going yeah. to be some controversy over this when we're hearing that coral reefs are going to be eradicated, uh, that the icebergs are melting, uh, that global warming is going to lead to poverty, starvation uh, and all sorts of problems. Uh, but the government has decided not to increase carbon tax. They have. Um, I suppose the lobby that has come from, you know, the, the whole year, 
cars, um, you know, also uh, public transport, people like that, um, that the, because we saw, like we had headlines only a week ago uh, that these were all going to be increased, sexual duty and all of these were all going to be increased. Uh, and then there was a U-turn, we believe, done on all of that. But I believe this morning uh, what they have decided is in order to rectify this is to... Um, to increase the registration for mm. new diesel cars. It's a 1% uh, VRT increase, uh, I think, uh, on right. newly registered diesel That's cars. Right. Uh, but I, I, I have a feeling that'll do little to uh, appease people who are worried about the end of the world by 2040. Uh, and, 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 yeah. and obviously mm. there will be a lot of controversy in, today with the Green Party and people like that uh, will be very upset about this. But they, they they have to have something to fight back with them on, and that's what what I think they decided last night. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable that the mm. finishing touches were only put uh, on this budget uh, late last night. Uh, and uh, perhaps that 1% VRT increase uh, will do something to reduce uh, emissions. And the government might claim as well that there'll be less smoke in the air because of the increase on the price of a packet of cigarettes. <laughs> I don't know if that makes a huge difference. I think uh, the increase on, on the cigarettes, like people that smoke, uh, the price of them, you know, really it has, uh, uh, doesn't make a huge difference. People that used to smoke and that have given them up and now see the, the cost of them and another mm. 50 cent to go on them, we believe today. I mean, it's just outrageous, uh, the, the amount of money that people spend on cigarettes. But, you know, as an ex-smoker myself, I know how difficult it is to give them up, and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be cost, uh, you know, that would have made me give them up. I gave them up for health reasons, um, but I think that it it is. I have to say. It is one of the most difficult things that I've ever done. And I feel sorry for those people that smoke um, and that they're going to be landed another 50 cent uh, on this today because I don't believe money makes a difference uh, to people that smoke. Well, no doubt uh, people will be out today buying uh, as many as they can, given that it's a significant increase if you are a smoker, uh, 50 cents. And that comes in uh, immediately, whereas most of these measures uh, don't uh, apply until January. What's the politics of all of this? Uh, Eileen, who's going to be claiming credit? I mean, obviously, there's a a lot of parties involved uh, between uh, the Independent Alliance ministers, the negotiations with Fianna Fáil, and uh, who's going to take blame for it, for that matter, when the opposition gets its turn to critique all of this? Yeah, well, I think, obviously, the blame, uh, Fianna Gael will have to take the blame uh, because nobody else is going to take it. Uh, I think uh, the Independent Alliance um, certainly uh, will take some credit for the the home conversion versions, uh, the granny flats, um, inheritance tax, um, that's, that's risen by 10,000. So you can now, in, uh, after this budget, you can inherit uh, 220,000, uh, 320,000. 320, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, so they're going to take credit for that. Uh, they did try uh, to stop the uh, increase in the 9% and the VAT on, um, uh, on the tourism. Mm. But um, I think uh, Shane Ross got, got some uh, some. Uh, stuff uh, and some more money uh, and some initiatives for tourism late last night uh, that will keep him happy because there was no way sure it's the only place they're really you know going to get any money uh, from is uh, from uh, from that vat all right, uh, and uh, it's uh, the third budget under the confidence and supply agreement that the government has the with Fianna Fáil. So what next? Well, I'd, I'd say negotiations will start very soon on that. I think 
there's a there's within Fianna Fáil there's certainly a huge amount of of uh, TDs in Fianna Fáil that don't believe that 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 you know that they should continue with this, but I think the way things are going at the moment, I think the way the polls are, uh, I think Fianna Fáil will definitely whether they'll do two years or do a year, um, I would say I'd nearly put money on the year rather another another budget maybe, uh, but I can't see it going further than that. Was it a government press officer who suggested to a journalist that this might be a, an election budget? Yeah, I mean, that <laughs> certainly was yeah, going around. I mean, that's hilarious. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Um, mm. uh, like, I mean, I mean, every budget is an election budget, you mm. know, because no, nobody knows at this stage uh, whether the government will fall. Um, obviously, you know, people would hope that it wouldn't. There's enough in there, I think, for the for the left. Uh, you know, for so uh, and and you know for Sinn Fein. Now, obviously, not uh, they have they have their own ideas and they won't they don't won't think this is a great budget. But there is a lot in there for those people. So um, I, I reckon this will all go through very well. But people are talking about an election for you know around next May June. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would just have to wait and see. So I suppose people do look at everything as an election budget. Now some of the stuff that's coming in. Um, uh, in in this budget, like particularly the childcare, the subsidies for childcare, um, you know, a lot of those won't be in for maybe next September and uh, November, uh, you know. So you're not, we're not going to see um, see any of that if you go if we have an election. It's all very fine to say this is what's happening, yeah. and, you know, but you're not going to see it, and a lot of people see it and see the childcare, um, they're going to get no benefit for it uh, if they go to, go to the people next May. So I'm, I don't believe we'd have an election, but then you never know what will happen to make a, a government fall. OK, Eileen, we'll uh, find out uh, what's in the actual budget at one o'clock this afternoon, uh, but uh, I think uh, that's uh, pretty informed speculation. we we'll leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed Thanks, for Michael. joining us as always. Our political editor, Eileen Brophy. Michael Reed on LMFM. A lot of uh, the measures announced in today's budget will make little or no difference uh, to a a lot of people. A few quid here, a few quid there, but it's an opportunity to change substantially the lives of the marginalised in Irish society. The Irish Refugee Council represents uh, the most marginalised cohort in this country and is calling for an increase in the amount of money that is paid in the allowance uh, for people who are in direct provision. That's uh, places like Mosny where people are given food and board and a weekly allowance and indeed to extend child benefit to asylum seekers. And we're joined by Rosemary Hennigan, Policy Officer with the Irish Refugee Council. Rosemary, as we've been hearing this morning, a lot of today's budget has already been leaked. I haven't seen any mention uh, in terms of changes uh, to uh, the allowances made to people in direct provision. Are you expecting any change? Hi, Michael. It's good to speak to you. Um, We're hopeful for some changes. The measures we've set out in the pre-budget submissions are actually really quite minor in terms of the amount that they would cost, but they would have a huge impact for the people that we represent. And we're hopeful that the government will take this on board and will consider some changes just to ease ease the pressure of people in direct provision. In line with a, a government commissioned report. That's it, yes. So the McMahon report was um, concluded in 2015 and the Department of Justice has been, um, it's been trying to implement many of the measures within that, but it hasn't yet increased the direct provision payment, which was due to be increased from €21.60 
to 38 euro um, and that's yet to happen. So we've asked the government to consider doing this now in budget 2019. Right, and I gather given uh, the scale of that increase in percentage terms, whilst it's still a very small amount of money for somebody to have on a a weekly basis, it would make a big difference to the people in direct provision to have 38 euro. Yes, absolutely. Um, the 2160, which is the current allowance, has only been increased just once since direct provision was first established in um, the early 2000s. So it really is a very, very minor increase. But that's expected to cover almost everything outside of your, your room and your board and your food. So it's really, that includes transport, it includes, you know, just your coffee in the morning, it includes absolutely everything. So it's a very, very small uh, amount for people to try and live on, particularly, you know, as the years go on. And there's quite a lot of delays now in in terms of moving people out of direct provision. So they're spending longer and longer trapped in the system and being paid very, very little a week. Uh, And what about the children? Uh, They don't get child benefit as it stands or their parents don't? No, there's no child benefit currently. It was, um, it was, it was cut off in 2004 and it hasn't been reinstated since. And that means the children, you know, it's not, it's not really a universal payment as we might understand child benefit to be because children in direct provision don't get it at all. Um, the consequences of that are that they're only getting the €21.60 a week. And again, that means that they're at a real disadvantage compared to, say, their classmates at school and, um, and everybody else in Irish society. OK, you say that the overall costs would be relatively small. How much are you talking about? We're talking about about 2 million per year, 2.7 million is what we've costed it at, which is really quite small. There's only a small number of children in direct provision, so it's not something which I think will have a massive impact on, on the budget overall, and it's something which can be delivered and which would just, it would signal that there is an intention to treat all children in Ireland equally and to put the best interests of the child at the heart of, um, of government policy in this area. Okay, and would uh, it uh, be something that could be looked at uh, in a, a way... Uh, that would uh, allow for a reduced rate of child benefit given that there's already significant support for people in uh, the asylum process? Yeah, there's not a huge amount of support for children specifically. Um, So I don't think it would be asking too much to to ask for it to be extended. It's only a small amount really a week. It would be €35 a week per child. Um, which, again, is, is quite minor in, in if you consider how much is being spent on, say, families who are earning above €100,000. Um, €330 million is paid currently to households with an income above €100,000. So in that context, the €2.7 which we're asking for really is quite minor. But there is a, an allowance already paid to children uh, who are, are living in direct provision centres, isn't there? There is. There's a weekly allowance of €21.60. So this would be, in our view, it should be paid on top of that, um, just to ensure that there's that level of quality between Irish children and children who are here um, seeking international protection. Okay, well, we'll hear what the Minister has to say, if he has to say anything in respect of this later in the day. And thank you for joining us here this morning. Rosemary Hennigan, Policy Officer with the Irish Refugee Council. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Drogheda Independent is reporting uh, this week uh, that drug dealers who are owed money and can't get it uh, from uh, the people they've been selling drugs to are going to the mothers of uh, these drug users and other women in the town demanding that they pay on their behalf. This follows on from a meeting of the Joint Policing Committee and we're joined by Labour Party Councillor P.O. Smith uh, how widespread is this problem, do you think? Uh, I think it's it's significant uh, in Drogheda and Dundalk and in other large provincial towns. How widespread it actually is, 
in terms of actual figures and numbers, I don't know. Because basically people uh, are reluctant to report this type of intimidation to the guards for a number of different reasons. And so we need to be able to get more information in relation to mm. what's going on, where it's going on. And then we need to come up with some type of solutions in regards to how we can address this issue. Well, I, I take it the main reason that people are reluctant uh, to inform is uh, that if you go to the guards and tell them that your son's drug dealer is demanding money, you're telling the guards, in effect, that your son is illegally taking drugs. Yeah. Now, in fairness to Angada Shikana, they have got a confidential line. Uh, they have got, a, 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 they have set up an inspector now to mm. deal with families and they are not looking to criminalise young people because they see this as being a wider society problem and they're trying to tackle it in that way. I think the guards have two hands tied behind their back because you can't police this type of uh, crime on a nine-to-five basis. You can't cut overtime and address this issue. So community policing is, is, is one of the major mm. things that we have to do. How but do you mean they're not trying to criminalise or they're trying not to criminalise, I think you actually well, said, it, yeah, uh, young people? Like, I mean... A young person who's 14, 15, mm. 16, uh, 17 years of age uh, who may have a small bit of uh, weed on them, mm. uh, you know, if okay, if they're caught and they're charged, they get a criminal record. And that criminal record then goes against them, that person for the rest of their life. Mm. Whereas the people who are supplying this type of stuff are getting away scot-free. And is that attitude across the board, does it also apply to heroin usage? Because heroin has really got a hold in places like Drogheda and Dundalk. Yeah, heroin has, and, and uh, cocaine has increased around Drogheda and Dundalk as well. Uh, and, I, you know, this is the difficulty in terms of the grey areas. of. Or, no, this is me just talking, no, I'm not a guard, mm. in terms of policing this type of stuff, because basically this is a serious issue around our communities. And if we allow this type of behaviour and intimidation to become normal in communities. Mm. But then we've got a serious threat to the state and to the way we live our lives. So we have to find ways of addressing this. Uh, are Gardaí turning a blind eye to heroin users? No, I can't say that Gardaí has turned a blind eye to heroin users. No, I can't say that at all. But they are turning a blind eye to pot smokers. Uh, I would suspect that sometimes they do mm. uh, because, you know, if you've got... A young guy, as I said, mm. you know, why criminalise? No, well, there's a, a, a very significant difference, uh, yeah. and I, I think on, on two levels, because a heroin user will break into my house or beat me up on the street to rob my wallet because they need the money to feed their addiction. Uh, and the other level is that they're risking their own lives uh, and uh, they're involved in something that uh, has a, a very detrimental impact on them themselves and I'm sure that if there was an intervention, that that would be more appropriate than a blind eye. Obviously, the intervention is the way to go. I mean, I disagree with you to say, with what you say that a heroin user would beat you up on the street to rob your wallet. I mean, uh, I don't know of any heroin users. I know a good few of them who engage in that type of behaviour. That's not to say that some people who have addiction problems don't engage in crime. You know, mm. I'm not burying my head in the sand in relation to that. But how do you pay for it otherwise? Pay for which? For heroin. Yeah, well, I mean, there's an awful lot of heroin users who actually work on a regular basis and they pay for it that way mm. uh, uh, so I mean and they'd want to be earning a lot of money though wouldn't they well it all depends on the extent of your habit well I mean you're talking about 100, 150 euro a day uh, not necessarily everybody's on that no mm. not necessarily mm. everybody spends that type of money no, there, would, there would be people full, probably engage, full blown addicts you know, some, some people who would be uh, full blown addicts mm. and who would be engaged in crime who would be engaged mm. in sell, and, selling and, heroin and, and as that well is the, that is the problem with heroin in that a lot of people 
think that they can be recreational users and they end up full-blown addicts. Yeah, well, it's probably, it's the problem with a lot of drugs. Mm. I mean, people think they can be recreational users in relation to alcohol and they can't. And, uh, like, I mean, this is an issue that's that's not being openly discussed around in, in society at all at the moment. You know, the effect that uh, alcohol, even cigarettes, and then go further in terms of the hard drugs are having on our society. Like, for, mm. for example, they've had this discussion in Portugal and other countries and they've changed the laws against decriminalisation the, the, of the user. Uh, but I mean, in terms of the intimidation that's going on, uh, there is a problem because people are not reporting it. They're not reporting it, as you said, because they, mm. they fear that if they do, there is going to be a really severe kickback on, on them by the people who are intimidating them. They also fear that the guards are powerless to do anything about it. Mm. Uh, they are the guards active, proactive. The guards are proactive in, the state, are they? in as much as they can be. But mm. I mean, if you if you've got a situation, have you heard of uh, people complaining that they've uh, reported heroin dealers and that there's been no response? Yeah, I have, and, uh, and that doesn't sound very proactive, does it? N- n- you have to put it in the context. I mean, mm. the context of if you look at the guard situation at the minute. If you look at the fact that the number of guards are available in a station such as Drogheda. Mm. Uh, to police the biggest town in the country, uh, and you've got an overtime ban. So you've got an awful lot of calls coming in for one car travelling around mm. a significant area. You can't blame the guards if they can't get to a call in a specific amount of time. Mm. I mean, this is an issue that the state has to look at. Can you blame the guards, though, if there's uh, a known dealer in a known address on an ongoing basis that is never raided? You can blame the state... And you can blame probably, in my view, uh, to some extent, the headquarters of of the guards in mm. terms of how they allocate resources. For example, do you blame, we've known, do you we, blame people we, for uh, wondering what's going on when no. it's written on somebody's door what they're doing and that there's pipe bombs in the area and different things like that and people start putting two and two together. I don't know if they're coming up with four, but they start saying, well, I think that dealer was probably giving information to the guards about the people he was selling to and that's why they didn't bust him. Well, I mean, look, anecdotally, we've all read crime novels. We all know that police use different types of informals, and that's been uh, a significant weapon have you in heard all types of crime. those kind of complaints in Drogheda? Uh, but you, you, of course you'd hear that. I mean, mm. uh, who doesn't hear that? But I mean, if you, believe, if you believe everything that you hear well, without you, having the evidence behind it, but do you believe that's you a, a credible person, complaint? You know? uh, no, uh, uh, not necessarily. I mean, First of all, go back to the point you made about mm. about c- tackling crime. We know, for example, that there are certain crime groups in Drogheda. And we know over the last six months there's been a significant uh, Garda onslaught on those crime groups. But we've known for the last number of years that those crime groups were there. Mm. It's only recently that the guards got the resources to be able to put against that crime group to try and take them out of the, the situation that they're involved in. That so, outside forces came so into play you had, more you, to the point rather than Gardaí acting locally. So you had the revenue, you had the local yes. Gardaí, mm. you had the cab mm. and you had uh, the number of specialised detective units mm. as well. Now that's a massive amount of resources to be deployed to take out a group and there's probably somebody else ready to step into the shoes mm. of the group that was taken out. But what else has happened in the interim? Like, I mean, when we talk about shotguns going off on halting sites and uh, people wondering if a guardie are searching quarries for bodies and that type of mm. thing, what has been happening locally without the intervention of outside forces, namely the cab from Dublin? Yeah, and, and this is the problem. This is what I'm getting at in terms of the, the cutback and overtime because if you've got a, a squad of guards on at specific times and then 
there are you know you can't operate outside of those hours then you uh, you can't police the areas you can't police the incidents you can't police the reports that are coming in uh, and then that has a negative feedback then in terms of communities. Communities kind of think then, well, look, there's no point in me reporting stuff because they do nothing about it. Mm. It's not the fact that they do nothing. It's the fact that they haven't got the resources to do something about it. And this then enables the criminals then to be able to step in because, you know, decent people find that, that a sense of helplessness nearly to some extent, that when they report stuff to the, to the authorities, they feel that there is nothing being done. But it's not a lack of will. Or it's a lack of resources and it's a lack of values that we have as a state that we're not able to say, listen, this is something that we really have to tackle because organised crime is a threat to our state. It's a greater threat to our state, I believe, than what happened in the 80s and the 90s in terms of the provisional IRA. But we don't allocate the same resources to tackling organised crime. Uh, Organised crime uh, in Drogheda is uh, something I, I think that uh, people are, are living with, uh, whether they're aware of it or, or, or not. Uh, and there's some fairly serious criminals uh, living locally. Uh, are they the kind of people who are approaching the women that uh, the pleasing committee has been hearing about? Not necessarily. They they are at arm's length away. It's people who are under them that are doing the, the, the intimidation. And the intimidation can be... Uh, physical, it can be psychological, it can be threats, it can be damage to property, uh, and it has really significant psychological impact on the individual's concern and the family's concern. Mm. I know of one person who tried to commit suicide because they felt it was the only way out for hi- him and his family. Uh, I have I know of families that have... How much was owed in that case? There was uh, €3,000. And, there and was, they felt the only way out was... Yeah, because basically what they... It's such they, a small amount of no, money. Yeah, but it's, yeah. It's, it's not that it's a small amount of money. It's significant for them. Of course, I, I, mean, but, I don't mean to... Yeah, but it was, it, it was the added on, the, the belief that mm. if I paid the three grand off, the interest rate at 25% would be still owed and still owed and still owed. And then I know of other families where the debt was paid off and straight away the individual has been tied again for more drugs on tick. Uh, you know, so this is the type of society that we're living in, but this doesn't have to be the type of society that we live in in the future. We as a community have to really look at how we're going to tackle this issue. We can't leave it to the guards. Uh, we can't leave it just to voluntary groups. We have to have a be- better way of, of tackling this, and we have to look at how we can intervene at an early stage and help people who are vulnerable. Uh, but we need to get belief in the communities that the guards can do something and protect them in, in in a way that enables them to be able to turn around and report these incidents. Mm. Well, the, no, well, there's only one way to do that, isn't there? You know, that's for the guards to prove that to us. Yeah, it is. And uh, it is, you know what I mean? And, and this is what I'm saying about the, the, uh, the higher ups in terms of the guards, uh, the headquarters. I mean, I'm sure their resources, they've run over budgets as well. But sometimes I think, we have to look at our values as a society and allocate where money is. We talk about social housing. Mm. If we really value social housing, let's put the money towards it. If we mm. really value fighting crime and building communities, well, then let's put money towards that uh, type of stuff. Otherwise, really, we're just doing a lot of talk and we're putting a finger in a hole and there's more holes appearing. And we're not really making any progress whatsoever. Uh, so we need, we need to have a value-based approach to how we allocate money to the different issues in our society. And... From what you know of this story where people are, are being asked for money that somebody else owes, whether it's their 
son or daughter, whatever the case may be. Uh, I'm sure it's a very worrying situation on all levels. Uh, what are they doing to get the money? Yeah, because as you say, this can be a significant amount of money for yeah, people. Uh, some of them borrow from other family members. Uh, some of them uh, borrow from the credit union. And uh, they'll go to any length they can to try and protect themselves and, and, and the people who are close to them. Mm. Uh, if they go to the guards, what will happen? Well, my belief is if they go to the guards that it will be treated totally confidential. Mm. Uh, but they'll still owe the 3,000, won't they, or whatever the amount is? They'll, yeah, they'll still owe and the, the 3, 25% interest. Yeah. Uh, now, the, the question is, and this is where I'm not a guard mm. and I'm not yeah. an expert, the question is then if you go to the guards and you, you, you outlaw everything to the guards, mm. what can be done after that? I mean, the chief uh, superintendent last week at the meeting said that uh, they have got a specialised team now Mm. Uh, to tackle this type of stuff that's really after coming from Dublin and other big cities back into the, the, the bigger towns. So they've got a unit now that can actually tackle this. How, mm. I don't know how they're going to tackle it. How they're going to create confidence in that individual or that family that we can protect you. Mm. That's, the, that's the key thing. That there won't be a, a petrol bomb on your house. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, that somebody else in the, uh, in the family won't be attacked going down yeah, the street. Or, or, or that you going to school won't be pulled aside by other school. This this goes into schools now. This goes into workplaces. This is not just mm. confined to a housing estate. You know, this is this is society that we're talking about here. Uh, that you as an individual going to school in fifth or sixth year aren't going to be pulled aside by two or three others and an issue. Or your sister walking down the street is not going to be threatened with uh, a sexual assault. Like this is really mean stuff. This is what's going on. Threatened with a sexual assault. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This is what's going on. Like because her brother owes money uh, for yeah, drugs. Yeah. This is where we're at now. If he doesn't pay. We'll rape you or something yeah, like that. Yeah, this is where we're at now. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, but this is the stuff that's going on. You know, this is the underbelly of what's going on that we don't like to talk about, that we don't like to address. Uh, but unfortunately, this is what's going on, and this is what I say: we, as a community, the guards are part of the community, but I, as a public rep, is part of the community. Community groups and people living in in Drogheda, that's the community. We have to stand up and see: can we tackle this? And we as leaders in the community have to try and figure out ways that we can facilitate people to address this issue. Labour Party Councillor P.O. Smith, thanks for coming in to us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. Lots of comments coming in in relation to the budget and some queries too. We had a text from a listener who says, Good morning, I'm just wondering, will those on social welfare be getting their bonus at Christmas? Yes, I believe uh, the government has already said that uh, the bonus will be restored in full. Uh, Fran says, if the unemployed are to get a miserable five euro of a rise in their allowance, it should be given straight away and not wait until the poppies bloom again. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Brendan says, so those on the dole since they left school and never did a day's work in their life are going to get an extra fiver on their payment and a Christmas bonus. Yet a person who worked for 40 years plus pay the PRSI taxes, etc. and retired at 65 and will have no income till they are 66. Where is the justice in all that? Brendan wants to know. Okay, well, there'll be uh, maybe four euro less taken out of uh, their pay packet, but I'm sure uh, they can look for a pay increase from their employers. Paul is hoping that the government will slap a 50 cent tax on every bet and for the proceeds to go to health 
or the homeless. He says that the bookies are always full and that he wouldn't begrudge the tax if he knew it was going to the homeless. Okay, well, uh, I think uh, there may, uh, I'm not sure at this stage, but I think there might be uh, an increase in betting tax. Your speaker is right, says Debbie from Navin and and referring to uh, our political editor, Eileen Brophy. And what she's right about, according to Debbie, is the prices of hotels. Debbie says that they really have escalated in recent months, that you used to be able to get great deals, but not anymore. The prices, she says, are gone crazy again. There you go. Yeah, they might go even crazier, I suppose, uh, because of uh, the increased VAT that the uh, hotels will have to pay now. But uh, that's the argument, I suppose, back and forth. They won't be happy mm. with that, Michael. They really campaigned against it, didn't they? Mm. Seamus from Dundalk. What about the, those big earners, Michael, who get out of paying tax here because they have a house somewhere else abroad? I hope that they're the ones that are targeted in this budget. The tax exiles? Yes. <laughs> okay, yeah. Dream on. Uh, another listener says Michael is petrol going to go up everyone was talking the pe- about petrol and diesel that it would go up and now we're hearing that it may not go up do you know? <laughs> well I don't think anybody knows uh, for sure other than Pascal Donoghue we'll all know at one o'clock today but uh, I think uh, the leaks would indicate that there won't be an increase in petrol or diesel. I went and filled up the car last night Okay, because <laughs> I thought it was coming so there you go. Uh, moving then to your interview uh, just a couple of moments ago with um, Councillor P.O. Smith regarding uh, drugs and the concerns locally. Uh, A listener says, very frightening to hear what Councillor Smith has to say. I agree uh, that there definitely needs to be more resources to deal with the drugs problem. A town like Drogheda is growing at an enormous rate and I don't think we have enough guardy in the town to deal with the problem. Okay, yeah, I think uh, a lot of people were taken aback by some of uh, the things they heard this morning. Kieran wonders if people who know drug dealers or drug users would ever think to report them to the Gardaí. He says that everything is put on the long finger in Ireland and nobody is really interested in solving the situation. So the point that Kieran is making is that if people want things to change, they have to be prepared to report if they see something that's not right. Okay, well, I think there's a a lot of fear and understandably so because of some of the reasons outlined for us on the programme. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This morning. A caller phoned in, didn't want to give a name, probably for obvious reasons, just to say that aware that of drug dealers knocking on the door of a local woman in the middle of the night looking for a payment. They had given her son who has a disability drugs and they were banging on the door in the middle of the night. The woman was terrified and was even too afraid to call the guardie. The caller said that there is a clean up that's needed, a clean up of drugs in the area that's needed. 
All right, some frightening stories all right for us uh, this morning. Uh, let's uh, go to the phones now and hear a terrible story of uh, some illegal dumping. Uh, local Fianna Fáil councillor Tommy Byrne, good morning to you. And uh, you've uh, some asbestos to report on. Yeah, thank you very much, Michael, for inviting me on. So, Michael, this is a, a, I condemn this very serious dumping of asbestos on the, on the Baltray Road, each side of the board sanctuary just south of the village there, and the asbestos is dumped in individual sheets to avoid detention and for high tide to take it away on a high tide. So this is the second time since 2016 when I reported the legal dumping of asbestos. The other incident occurred at the nearby Bewley Road. Mm. So like, it's, it's absolutely disgraceful here. I mean, you see a wonderful community in Beltray and along the road there, community effort, and see these culprits, there was t- it was... Throwed, uh, dumped on the road there in individual sheets there. So this, this is down by the beach, though, is it? it it's down between south of the uh, five hundred y- yards south of the village of Baltray uh, on the Drogheda Road there between Queensborough, and it's dumped that you can't. I actually a uh, But down at the Haven, is it, Tommy? It's done. It's dumped along the bank there of, of the river there, mm. and you cannot easily see it. I had to search for it, but yeah. there's about a dozen, a dozen uh, uh, sheets there, and. It's 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 one of the most clearest clearest uh, section of the mm. river. The, the, these sheets, by the looks of the photographs you sent to us, uh, probably would have made up uh, the roof of an old shed or something like that. Well, they did. Yeah, I know. Mm. I don't want mm. to throw blame, but it's obviously that's where it came from, and mm. it was it was very carefully dumped off, you know, on a move a slowly moving vehicle, and. Uh, but look, this, you know, the message must go out that the maximum deterrent be slapped on anyone mm. acting in such an irresponsible and disgraceful manner. I indeed placed a note of motion to the Minister for Law Reform to, to, to you know, to, to entire, to, uh, to compare to, for blatant illegal dumping offence in a distinct, mm. in an existing fine to set out a strong message and a deterrent that would be Yeah, but how, how are you going to catch uh, the people involved? We're talking about a, a very isolated uh, part of uh, the county uh, and uh, it's not the type of material that would be easily uh, identifiable uh, and uh, I'm sure uh, that uh, there's no CTV around or anything like that so the prospect of tracing down whoever is responsible for this this is nil to none. What I'm wondering there is, is a, a, you know, a, a camera there on the, on the port there, you know, or on pretty, pretty, uh, on the factory there as well. So I do think that the, the government will have to ha- assist local communities there with funding there to, to uh, on, on cameras there because we cannot continue with this. It, it's absolutely out, outrageous, and uh, you know I'm calling for the for the uh, you know for the for the. Uh, you know, for the culprits there, mm. the, the driving license, uh, you know, to be, you know, con- uh, when, when convicted, uh, when con- con- convicted, you know, <coughs> sorry, my, uh, <coughs> I'm sorry, what was that you, you want done with their driving license? For the government to issue more significant fines and to dis- describe the, the culprits of their driving license when, when uh, convicted. Okay. I, you know, the, would that be a deterrent? I, I mean, uh, the type of material that you're talking about, it could cost maybe five or ten thousand to have that disposed of uh, appropriately. Well, they'll, they'll have to remove it. You know, the the, uh, the culprits will have to move it as well. Well, the council will have to move it now, won't I, they? I know it is, mm. and uh, it, but it's absolutely uh, disgraceful. You know, and so there, mm. there has to be some. Uh, you know, there has to be serious uh, effort, you know, to, to uh, get the culprits here because uh, there's no enough of uh, advertisement to on this. You know, so I, I really now it must be, 
it must be. Sorry, Michael, as a, as a code this morning, you know, mm. so we'll have to call, call me on this. So the, the, the fines are not strong enough to, to, to dare the culprits. Okay. You know, so yeah. uh, uh, I, I hope I, that the minister will take a notice and take note on it. You know, yeah. I've raised it before on time and I hope it will. Well, it really is a, a tragedy if it's uh, the part of uh, Baltrade that uh, I think you're talking about, because you said it's near the bird sanctuary. Uh, you're talking about the haven and it's a, a special area of conservation. So obviously uh, it's significant. Of the environment and public health as well. You know, it's, it's, it's a huge issue. All right, thanks. Uh, Apologise that, Michael. I just a bit of a toll there. Thanks, Michael. OK, I hope uh, that thanks, clears Michael. up for you uh, soon, sooner than mine has. Uh, but uh, thanks uh, for joining us, Fianna Fáil Councillor Tommy Byrne. Uh, let's go back to some more of uh, the comments uh, that uh, you've been sharing with us on the phones and through the text. Uh, Mary, what else have you got for us? Yes, Pat was in touch uh, following um, our interview yesterday regarding diesel laundering. And he say, he feels that there's two ways to stop it. Pat is from Athboy and he says that we should do away with green diesel and give a rebate to those who are using it legally. And secondly, he said we should confiscate any premises that is producing illegal petrol or diesel and that would put a stop to it, mm. uh, he feels. Okay. is the way forward yeah. on that front. Uh, we had an email in from Trace, and Trace says this is in relation to social housing and she says that she's sick of these as she describes them Michael social housing snobs giving out about how low income people get everything handed to them. The better off in our society benefit hugely from having low income people providing cheap services and products for them. If the social snobs want a level playing pitch, then let's get rid of all low-income jobs so that all workers can afford the same housing. This would mean that cheap services and products would no longer be available and house prices would rise for all. No one would really benefit. Social housing is promoted throughout Europe as a good thing and allows for the compensation for low-income workers so that these socially elite snobs can live less expensively. Okay. So thanks to Trey's from that. Mm. Uh, Johnny heard us, got in touch, heard us men- mentioning a betting tax and he said that there are betting companies who are headquartered in one country but are registered in a different country and he wants, wonders if this will have any effect on companies like these and how this is allowed to happen. Yes, it is a, a virtual world that we live in. So I'll finish on that one, Michael. All right, thanks uh, for that, Marie, and thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Family and friends will pay their final respects uh, to Emma Vic Fahuna today and as they do that, uh, the idea of screening for cervical cancer becomes something uh, that is at risk in uh, this country as 20 of the 221 women have been given wrong results, have subsequently died. Concern now that there will be no screening because of uh, the labs involved looking for indemnity so that they won't face uh, legal challenges in court. It's uh, the latest twist in a a sorry tale. Louise O'Reilly is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health and she joins us now and uh, it appears as though they have until this weekend to strike some sort of a a deal. What is your understanding of all of this? Good morning, Michael, and uh, good morning to your listeners. And, and can I just express my sincere condolences to the family of uh, Emma Victorina and to her family and friends. And 
today is a, is a very, very sad day because in the middle of all of this crisis, we see the, the tragic loss of life. And, and these are very young women, very often with, with young families. And I think it's, 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 it's very poignant. And, and when Emma had spoken about, uh, about the disease and about how she was, uh, you know, she really fought hard, but, but in the end, she was overwhelmed by the, by the cancer. And I think it's, today is a sad day, but mm. we also have to look, um, at the fact that Emma shone a light on uh, and, and others like, like Vicky and Stephen mm. Tepa that they shone a light on what happens within the uh, within the screening program and what started as an issue over uh, the non-disclosure of results has uh, has grown into a wider examination of the screening program and, and how it works. My understanding is that the, the government and the labs are very close to a deal, um, and that the indeed they they had the bones of the deal worked out. Um, I know that Keen O'Carroll, who is the, the solicitor, who, who was Emma's solicitor, has said that, you know, when we're talking about the deal with the labs, that we're not really talking about the important issue, that we should be looking at the quality and we should be learning lessons from what happened to uh, to those women who were let down by the service. No screening service is going to be 100%, but in some cases it does appear that very serious uh Cases of cancer were actually missed, and in Emma's case, missed on more than one occasion. So and that, a proper, that is, a proper that is, audit of what went wrong to find out why it went wrong and who was responsible. I think that's what we need, and I think we because I'm a user of the, the cervical check service myself. Um, I know the limitations of screening. I've had that discussion with uh, with my doctor, but. When you look at the literature, Mike, and, and some of your listeners will, will probably have one of the uh, the cervical check leaflets lying about the house. I, I know I, I managed to dig one out there last week. And it says on it, no screening program is 100% effective. Now, I think when when you say that, that to me sounds like it's it's nearly 100% effective. Mm-hmm. You know, no program is 100%. So I think what they need to do is be more honest on the literature. And they need to say to women, even if you have had a negative smear test, if you are symptomatic, you must go back to your doctor. Because for a lot of us, you know, you, you don't think too much about it. You, you go, you get the test done, then you don't hear anything, then you might get a letter in the post to say that, that it was negative. And then you put it out of your mind, but you might experience some symptoms which in under normal circumstances would make you worried. But because you think, ah, oh, I'm grand, I've, I've had a negative smear, it's definitely not that. And you put it out of your mind. It's to say to people, don't be panicked, put your faith in the screening programme. We absolutely need we need the screening program. It's not 100% effective. So if you ha- if you are symptomatic, if you're worried, go and talk to your doctor. Am I right in thinking, though, that when they read these smear tests, uh, that it's not always obvious? And that's the percentage of error that they talk about in terms of screening. But that on yes. occasion, it shouldn't have been missed. This is this is the point. There are, there are some people for whom it, it would never be detected because it is not obvious. Um, and then there are others, and I think Emma's case is one of those. And I don't have the technical expertise mm-hmm. to, to obviously read a smear test, but I, I have spoken to people involved in the area, and my understanding is that in some of the cases there were very obvious signs, and it was those signs that were missed. So not the not the the the, the, the stuff that could never have been picked up, but these were um, in. in in two and more cases for some of the women where there was very obvious signs of cancer and that was actually missed. And that's where I think um, we need to have the serious review. I think we need to look at how that happened. I think we need to ask ourselves why, 
even though HICWA has the power to go to the US labs and, and carry out investigations, mm-hmm. that that wasn't done on a timely basis. We also need to know what level of oversight. I mean, one of the issues that were highlighted by um, by some of the clinicians involved is the time difference between Ireland and America, which made teleconferencing and linking with the colleagues who were reviewing the slides over there very, very difficult. We also saw, and this came out in the Scali report, that some of the tests were sent to uh, to to Houston and Texas, I think it was, and then from there they were really outsourced to, uh, in some cases, Honolulu, uh, in other cases, um, even further away than that. So the the lab that we thought we had the contract with then undertook to re-outsource. And uh, Dr. Scully, I think, you know, had examined that. And what he said was, this issue needs further detailed examination. And that's a direct quote from the Scully report. So if the if Dr. Scully is saying an issue needs further examination, then I'd like to see that. If, I, if I remember correctly, uh, Dr. Scully was saying that, uh, that a lot of the staff working in the lab in Texas were in a, a training role, which was bad enough, uh, but then they didn't even get to do the test because they were outsourced uh, again onto Honolulu and wherever else was. Uh, San the Antonio, case. Uh, Honolulu, Orlando, um, places like that. And again, you see, the, the fact that it's taken... Um, a major scandal mm. to unearth this information. I mean, that, and he, that, he, he that's said that that was worrying. a breach of contract, effectively, that the contract was clear that the contract was with Houston and not with anywhere else. Yes, but unfortunately, uh, all of the documentation to do with the tender and the contract has been shredded and it's not available for us to examine. Um, which really disturbs me. Also, I've been asking for a breakdown, uh, and I've been asking this now for months, uh, for a breakdown uh, of the results and the level of of, mis- uh, of missed uh, diagnosis between each of the, the various labs and indeed mm-hmm. where there was re-outsourcing. I've looked for that breakdown. Now, when I looked for it initially, the HSE and the cervical check officials who were in front of the health committee said, absolutely, we'll have that for you. No bother at all. There's no no question uh, that, that, that'll be done. Mm. And yet we still have to, and when I asked the minister about it, the minister then says, oh, well, we're, the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology are doing another review, so we'll, we'll find out more from that. I don't know why, if oversight is being done, that I can't, they can't just simply uh, flick a switch and send me that information. I would have thought that somebody in the HSE or in the cervical check service would, would have been keeping an eye on that and making sure that there wasn't any uh, any blips or any outliers or anything that would give cause for concern. But it does seem, and you know, 10 years ago when this was outsourced, Michael, I was working in the union and I... At the time, we would have publicly said that we had a serious difficulty with this being outsourced purely and simply because we felt that it was a loss of control by the Irish state. Now we see that once they were outsourced, the HSE and the cervical check would just say, OK, well now all we have to do is write a check. So we'll just write a check for that and that'll be fine. But there doesn't seem to have been the level of oversight and governance that we would uh, that we would expect or that would be possible if the service was provided directly by the HSE in HSE labs. Uh, and uh, you'd be able to overcome uh, what seems pretty complicated in that you have this margin of error where there may be cancer, but uh, it's not obvious. And on the other hand, uh, it should have been seen. Uh, I, I think a lot of people would argue that in a case like that, when it's being contested that it should have been seen uh, and the lab is saying, well, it wasn't obvious that that can only be decided in a court. 
Yeah, and that's very unfortunate because I, I think there is an element uh, of where mediation may be possible. Um, but when you have the both the, the labs and in some cases the state aggressively fighting um, young and very, very ill women um, in order to, to force them to, to prove what happened to them. I mean, I, I know yeah. I don't want to upset your listeners, but I, I, I have heard descriptions of uh, the kind of processes that these women went through in the courts, you know, where they had to speak about their, they felt like their sex life was on trial, like their every intimate detail of their lives had to be put out in order that they might be able to prove that damage was done to them. And I think that has to stop. I think it was quite irresponsible of Antishak to say no woman will have to go to court um, because I think that he wasn't able to back that up with the necessary resources for mediation or indeed uh, to be able to ensure that, that women don't. And we know that uh, that Ruth Morrissey is, is going through the courts at the moment. And I'm sure that she would tell you herself that that's the last thing she wants to do is, is to, to, to uh, have to go through the, the, the gruelling and arduous process. But indeed, in order to be able to prove that uh, that there was liability, that's what she has to do. I think that Taoiseach should reflect, and I know this is budget week and maybe he's mm. busy, but next week he should reflect on that promise that he made and have a look at how he might make that a reality, be that um, some kind of no-fault uh, scheme or a panel of experts, which uh, I know that Keno Carroll, um, Emma Vick-Fahuna's solicitor, is advocating that there would be a panel of experts that will decide rather than the adversarial process of the court. So, you know, I think there is scope for this not to be an adversarial process, for the state not to uh, effectively take on and do battle with these vulnerable young women. Um, and I think that the Taoiseach should reflect on what he said. And this, I'm, I'm not trying to point the blame because I'm actually sure he was very well-meaning when he said it, um, because nobody wants a woman to have to go through that. But I think he, he should look behind his own sound bite and look behind his own spin and try and see if he can actually put together a package or a scheme that might ensure that those women don't have to go to court and that they can get the justice that they deserve via a less adversarial process. Okay, while you're with us uh, and it being budget day and uh, health service, that's 700 million euro over budget. Uh, It it looks as though a a lifeline will be given because of uh, the windfall last week and uh, the billion euro unexpected corporation taxes. Uh, What are you expecting to hear today? Well, um, we know that Fianna Fáil has prioritised the National Treatment Purchase Fund, so that's privatisation, that, that's always been the Fianna Fáil mantra with regard to uh, our health services. Well, for the last number of years, the National Treatment Purchase Fund takes money out of the public health service and puts money into the, the private health sector. It's, it's not a model favoured by Sinn Féin or indeed by uh, by health economists like Sarah Burke, who will say it's a very short-term uh, solution, but actually in the long term, it, it makes absolutely no difference and in some cases can make things worse. We also know that there has been a windfall and it looks like some of that's going to be allocated to the health overspend. But this time last year, when Pierce Doherty was delivering his budget speech, he cautioned the minister that there was a, an overrun in health and that there, there would keep being an overrun in health because they weren't providing adequately for us. So what they've, they've done this year, um, and, and they were they were lucky that they, they appeared to be surprised, um, which is a little bit worrying, really, that the government gets surprised by a windfall tax. But um, what they appear to have done is allocated that money to health. But what it won't do is in the long run solve the chronic underfunding problem. So we need to realistically look at the health service year on year. 
Uh, I mean, it was March this year when Tony O'Brien wrote to the Minister for Health and said that there were serious overruns in the health budget. We saw no plan to tackle those. Uh, and as, as, as far as I'm concerned, the plan was simply to roll over that overrun into next year. And then obviously they had the, they had the windfall. But that will just plug the gap for this year. If there's no realistic targeted funding for health, then next year we will find ourselves in the same predicament. But we won't have the uh, the windfall tax to be able to... Um, to be able to plug that gap. So I think the, the government and the Minister for Health need to examine health overspend and look realistically at what exactly it takes to run the health service in this state and start providing proper money for it so that there can be investment and so that there can be forward planning for uh, for the health service and we're not just lurching from one crisis to another to another. Okay, well, we'll uh, get the details later, but thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, Louise O'Reilly. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you were listening to the programme recently, you might have heard the conversation I had with uh, the DUP's Jim Wells uh, about uh, the prospect of uh, the United Kingdom crashing out of uh, the European Union and how that might lead to, to a hard Brexit or a hard border on this island uh, in uh, the event of a hard Brexit. And uh, that uh, the only way that you could uh, affo- uh, avoid a hard border was for Northern Ireland to effectively stay within the European Union. Uh, exactly, he said, which is why it'll never happen, which is why there'll never be a, a border poll uh, to allow for a united Ireland. But uh, apparently that's not the view of all unionists. Fianna Fáil Senator Mark Daly has been making this point recently in uh, the press and he's on the line. And uh, you've been looking at comments made uh, by independent unionist MEMP Sylvia Herman and also by Sophie Long, uh, who was a uh, PR agent uh, for the PUP at one stage. Yeah, and Sophie Long, as you said, was the former press officer for the Progressive Unions Party, which uh, uh, is the political wing of the paramilitary group, the UVF, and she said on a BBC Northern Ireland debate uh, that unionism should negotiate now from a position of strength for its place within the United Ireland, and you refer to uh, Lady Sylvia Herman, the unionist MP for North Down, who is the widow of the former chief constable, and she has said that there would be a referendum on a united Ireland in her lifetime. And this also is all because of Brexit. But that doesn't and, necessarily and, mean that uh, the referendum will be carried. No, but for the first time ever, an opinion poll in Northern Ireland, bear in mind opinion polls in Northern Ireland are very unreliable, but uh, for the first time ever, uh, three weeks ago, an opinion poll showed that the majority of people in Northern Ireland would vote in favour of a united Ireland in the event of a hard Brexit and a hard border. So the arguments being put forward by the DUP for Brexit are actually uh, more likely to end up uh, leading to United Ireland than anything else. Uh, and the, in, you know, the research I've come across, and also from talking to the union community, including last weekend, uh, they all believe there will be a referendum. So it's incumbent on our government uh, to put in place the preparation for it, but also to address the fears of unionism in relation to United Ireland and I looked at that in my report last year for the Good Friday Agreement Committee on Brexit and, and uh, the issue of unification which was the first report ever done by a dollar Senate Committee on uh, the issue of Irish reunification and they identified three main concerns uh, and this was drawn up for me by a member of the Ulster Defence Regiment uh, Captain James Wilson who 
has looked at the issues that are concerning the unionist community and they boil them down to three. There are many, uh, but the three main ones are the issue of retribution of former members of the security forces, uh, that those who were involved in the RUC and the British Army uh, and some of them uh, involved in collusion with paramilitary groups, that we would go after the files and go and prosecute them. The second issue that he identified as a concern was the issue of land ownership and that the land given during the plantation would be taken off uh, Protestant farmers in Northern Ireland. And the third one was the issue of identity. Some, so, uh, some of those issues seem somewhat bizarre, don't they? they I, I mean, the, the land issue mm. uh, struck me as one that I, I, I couldn't quite fathom, but mm. to members of the unionist community in, their, in, in, I suppose, their memory, uh, during the aftermath of the War of Independence, during the War of Independence and the Civil War, uh, they saw many uh, members of the Protestant community uh, leaving the South, um, some to go to England and some uh, to go to Northern Ireland. And that, that wasn't a small number. That was in the thousands. Some of them were intimidated off their farms and off their lands that they had been farming for generations. Uh, they saw in Fermanagh and Tyrone where farmers were... I, uh, targeted and killed uh, by uh, paramilitary groups uh, in order to force them to sell the land mm. uh, and to force them off the land. So this is not a, a, a concern that is by any means a small concern. It is a serious concern and a real concern. And that's why the Irish government need to address that particular issue, but all the other ones. And as But would it be seen as, as reversing justice as such? Well, I mean, if we want to create a new future and a new Ireland, we cannot do that by settling scores from the past. Mm. This is going on 849 years. We're not going to do ourselves, our future generations, any good by trying to settle every score over the last nine centuries. Uh, So if we're trying to create a new agreed Ireland, then we have to have a better vision of that for the future uh, than trying to uh, tackle all the issues and the hurt and the pain of many generations. And that, like, mm. in terms of the troubles and, and the victims of the troubles, those issues have to be addressed as well. But they need to be addressed, but they're not being addressed by the government. No, the Irish government is not engaging with the US community to address their concerns. And um, what would all of this mean in pounds, shillings and pence, or euro and cent, as uh, the case may be? Because you mentioned uh, the report your Oireachtas committee published, and that had 17 recommendations in it. One of them was to ascertain the level of income and expenditure in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I, I looked at that issue and I worked with Gunther Thurman, who is, was a senior economist with the International Monetary Fund on the Germany desk during German reunification. And he looked at the current expenditure for Northern Ireland. And much of the reported deficit for Northern Ireland in terms of its expenditure is actually expenditure attributed by Britain as part of being in the United Kingdom. So included in the 10 billion euro uh, deficit for Northern Ireland is Northern Ireland's share of British military global spending, Northern Ireland's share of its uh, UK uh, debt interest payment, and Northern Ireland's share of the running of the royal family. Uh, he also said that pension payments to former members of the RUC and British Army would not be a liability of the Irish government, but would be a liability of the British government, and that amounts to nearly £3 billion per annum. And then the issue of... Um, the civil service, which in Northern Ireland, as Gunther Thurman pointed mm. out, a bit like East Germany, there was an inflated civil service, and Northern Ireland has about 
uh, 4% more. Uh, it has about 11% of its working population is civil servants, whereas the Republic is 8%. So this wouldn't so, impoverish Northern Ireland. Is that the argument? Well, it depends on if the government take action now and engage with all sides, then you can plan and prepare. Uh, but if there is a referendum called by a Secretary of State and you have 10 months or 12 months to prepare, mm. then that is not the way to go about it. What so about what the rest of us, though, uh, in the South? Uh, what impact would it have economically on uh, the South? Because uh, research uh, from John Fitzgerald of Trinity College and Edgar Morganroth of uh, DCU suggested that we'd see a 15% drop in our standard of uh, living in the South. Well, I, I engage with both of those gentlemen on radio debates and uh, John Fitzgerald made the point that we would end up paying the RUC pension. Now, I'll tell you one thing. What we won't be doing is sending John Fitzgerald and Edgar Morgan Roth over to negotiate the exit deal uh, in relation to this issue. And I said, well, the UK. And he pointed out, well, we paid the RIC pension. And, uh, you know, while that mm. might have been the case 100 years ago, we're certainly not going to pay the RUC pension, the British Army pension, the British but, officer pensions. But Northern, Northern Ireland, Ireland receives 11 billion euro a year from London, and no, 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 that's no, 25% of its national income. You know, but 11 billion a year includes the payment to British Army officers and RUC pension. It includes the payment, Northern Ireland share of the British Royal Family, Northern Ireland share of that. Northern Ireland share, including that 11 billion a year, is Northern Ireland's share of the UK's contribution to the EU. Well, obviously, that's not going to happen because Northern Ireland isn't going to be part of the UK and the UK isn't going to be part of the EU. So a lot of that $11 billion is an accounting figure. But uh, like John Fitzgerald was making the argument that we should pay the RUC pension after unification. I would argue that we would not. And I think most Irish people would argue that we would not. Okay, so... So, yeah, so, so the $11 billion a year... Comes down to what? So Thurman looked... Gunther Thurman, who is probably one of the few economists alive in the world today who has forced an experience of reunification in terms of German reunification, he even had private conversations with Helmut Kohl. He said, deducting all of the expenditure that is attributed to Northern Ireland and making prudent adjustments to the public service would bring the deficit to 700 million. Right, which is obviously significantly lower it's vastly lower, but you see, it depends on whether John Fitzgerald's argument that we should pay RUC pensions and British Army pensions and even continue, bear in mind, even continue to pay Northern Ireland share to the running of the British royal family, well then, yes, it will cost £10 billion a year. But I would argue we should not continue to pay uh, for the royal family in England, but maybe John Fitzgerald feels otherwise and Edward Morgan Roth might feel the same. Okay. But I, I, I disagree with them fundamentally on that issue. Okay. But, this issue is all about planning and preparation. And the government at this moment in time are not doing any pre- preparation. And I said the report that I compiled last year for the Good Friday Agreement Committee was the first report in the history of the Irish state ever written about the issue of reunification. Now, we need to do a lot more work to prepare and plan, but most importantly, to engage with the union community to address the fears and concerns that they have about the future of this island. But like, the okay. clear thing about Brexit is that you don't hold a referendum and then tell everybody what the future looks like. The lesson of Brexit is you have long-term engagement, let everybody know what the future looks like, do all the preparation, okay. and then and only then you have the referendum. I, I have to leave it there because I, I'm running over time at this stage, but thank you indeed. Fianna Fáil, Senator Mark Daly. 
Now, the Food Safety Authority issued eight closure orders and one prohibition order in September. Two of uh, the companies involved are based in County Mead, and we'll hear a little bit about the problems now with uh, Dr. Bernard Hegarty, Director of Enforcement Policy with uh, the FSAI. Good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, A closure order uh, served in Kells on Kyber Garden. This followed uh, the discovery of rat droppings and indeed uh, the sighting of a rat in the yard outside. Uh, good morning, Michael. Uh, yes, that's uh, correct. Um, we uh, are now publishing the orders and uh, they indicate that the inspector has actually observed, observed very significantly the rat droppings in the premises uh, and uh, the um, when they turned on the the tap in the kitchen sink and they observed a live rat emerging from the, the drain in the rear yard. Um, so obviously that's uh, uh, the, 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 the um, potential for contamination uh, of food with um, pathogenic dangerous bacteria is uh, very grave and a uh, closure order was immediately served on that premises. In particular because uh, the kitchen door was open at the time that the rat was seen. Okay, uh, and uh, undoubtedly uh, that of uh, concern to people locally. That closure continues to be in place, does it? Uh, No, it was actually uh, lifted. Um, Closure orders are lifted after re-inspection by the uh, competent authority. In this case, it was the Environmental Health Service of the HSE uh, that re-inspected the premises um, after the the premises had obviously improved uh, its practices and um, the order was lifted then uh, about a week later. Okay, tell us uh, about uh, the company in Navan, Baby Pure Water Limited, a closure order and a prohibition order here. Why was that? Um, yes, and they do two different things. And the closure order uh, does what it says. It closes the premises. Uh, this was a premises um, extracting um, water and um, supplying bottled water. Um, and it uh, was doing so without having the, the, the necessary legal uh, procedures um, for ensuring the safety of food and also the water hadn't been analysed uh, to demonstrate compliance with the, the requirements of the legislation. The prohibition order is actually to stop the um, uh, further distribution of the water itself. So the, the water that had been produced in the premises um, was to, to, to be recalled and um, that was again necessary because it had been produced. Uh, and uh, as a product, this water is for babies, is it? Uh, no, no, I believe it's um, a bottled water that's somebody supplied as, as bottled water, just that, that's the brand name. Okay, right. Uh, but uh, there were hazards uh, that weren't uh, being prevented or the systems weren't in place to prevent potential hazards. Uh, that's that's correct, and including the fact that uh, no official controls were in place there as well. Um, the premises hadn't actually registered with uh, the HSE uh, as, as a food business. Okay, and what's uh, the situation there? Are they back up and running now? Uh, no, no, that closure order is still in place. All right, look, thank you indeed for, for joining us uh, this morning. Dr. Bernard Hegarty, Director of Enforcement Policy with uh, the Food Safety Authority of Ireland. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with uh, those investigations. Garda Tara McManus of uh, Drogheda Station joins us for the report this week and we begin in Drogheda with a robbery. 
Good morning, Michael. Yes, we start with a robbery that happened last Tuesday, um, the 2nd of October. This happened quite late in the evening, about half ten. Um, a young man was on the train in Drogheda coming home from college when um, a male approached him, stated that he had a 10-inch knife in his pocket and that if the young man didn't hand over... Um, any money or valuables he had that he was going to stab him. Now, the young man ended up handing over um, some cash, his phone, different things like that. And um, that man then left at Drogheda Garda station, or sorry, left at the Drogheda train station there and um, left the area. Now, we don't have any decent description of him, but um, perhaps a lot of people might have been on that train last Tuesday evening and noticed something. And if you did, uh, the Garda here in Drogheda would like to speak to you. We've a, a number of burglaries this week, the first of them in Navan. Yeah, this one happened um, in a house on the Proudstown Road in Navan last Wednesday. Uh, the third happened sometime in around 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, man arrived back home to discover um, a window at the front of the house had been pulled open and a number of items had been taken from the house. Um, Xboxes, computers, uh, stuff to do with gaming, uh, games and things like that. So again, it's quite blatant in the, in, in the middle of the morning. So if anyone notices anything there or if, you know, you're offered that sort of um, equipment for sale, the Guardian and Navin would like to speak to you. To the Brookville estate in Drogheda where Guardian are investigating a burglary there. Yeah, this one happened on um, Friday the 5th of October at Brookville. Um, again, happened in late of the evening. Occupants um, of the house had gone to work and a neighbour noticed that the internal alarm had been activated and when he, they further investigated, discovered the front door had been forced open um, and the house had been ransacked. Now, it does appear that the culprits were actually disturbed in the middle of that um, burglary and they left through a first floor window um, and a number of pieces of jewellery were taken. So again, quite blatant again and the Guardian Drahada would like to speak to if you saw anything there on the Proudstown, or sorry, in Brookville in Drogheda last Friday. And again last Friday in Drogheda, another burglary this at Ardree. Yeah, this one only about an hour later um, happened um, at Ardree in Drogheda and similar um, similar modus operandi there. Um, people were disturbed. Now in this particular case, um, a neighbour observed four youths leaving that particular premises in one a new style um, Santa Fe in a dark coloured. So the new style of Santa Fe's a dark coloured Jeep was seen leaving Ardry last Friday evening at about half seven at speed. So again, if you noticed that or you saw anything unusual, again, the Guardian Drogheda would like to talk to you. Okay, and the last of the burglaries in Kinnegad again last Friday. Yeah, this one, or sorry, this one last Saturday. Sorry, my apologies. Okay. This one last Saturday, the 6th of October. Um, again, a Jeep seen parked at the back of a house and when they were disturbed, um, they left in the Jeep. Now, what we do know, that Jeep, that we believe it was kind of a, a multicoloured uh, Mitsubishi uh, Pajero, and we think we have a partial reg of 01CN, so 01 Cavan reg, uh, again, leaving the area there at um, Balanabraki in Kinnegad last Saturday evening. OK, before you leave us uh, in the run-up to Halloween, uh, some advice, indeed, some warnings. Uh, we've already had a report, I think, of a, a very serious injury from fireworks. Yeah, I think that one happened down in Cork. So look, we, we issue this appeal every year and we will continue to do so up until Halloween. 
But um, look, we, we want to talk to people about the serious dangers that are actually associated with using fireworks. Every year, many children and young persons, um, they suffer horrific injuries caused by fireworks, burns, loss of limbs, serious eye injuries. And we want to remind the public that the sale, possession or use of fireworks in this country is illegal. And many of the fireworks that are offered for sale illegally in the country have not passed any sort of quality control tests and are possibly quite defective. Um, we also want to um, say to parents, uh, they need to be responsible ensuring that their children don't cause injury to themselves or others during the Halloween festivities. So if they are out trick-or-treating or they are out around bonfires, it is up to parents to ensure they know where their children are, they know what they're doing and they are ultimately responsible if their child ends up injuring somebody else with an illegal firework. Garda Tara McManus of Drogheda Garda Station, thank you indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. But that's where we leave you for today because our time has run out on us once again. Remember there'll be a podcast available on our website lmfm.ie this afternoon if you'd like to listen back to today's programme. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Ross Leahy for researching and Chris Murray in the control term. Now Michael and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.